The semi-fascists are coming from inside the house. The side that purges dissent, demands ideological compliance, dehumanizes opposition, isn't the side that believes in democracy. Quote, the liberty of a democracy is not safe if the people tolerated the growth of private power to a point where it becomes stronger than the democratic state itself. That, in essence, is fascism. Ownership of government by an individual, by a group, or any controlling private power. Franklin Delano Roosevelt The same week, Mark Zuckerberg admitted the FBI pressured him to deep-six the story of Hunter Biden's laptop. Joe Biden called the populists on the right semi-fascists. From the FBI's raid on Mar-a-Lago, to the use of social media to police the Biden administration's idea of misinformation, to the surveillance of political enemies of the state by an all-volunteer army of social media users, semi-fascism is all around us. Naturally, this gave many of the hyperbolic Twitter users a jumping-off point to get those juicy, juicy likes as they continue to cheerlead Biden in all the wrong directions. Here is a tweet from Rick Wilson that says, Mr. President, there's nothing semi about their fascism. So let's get a few basics out of the way, shall we? The side policing speech are the semi-fascists. The side demanding ideological compliance, also the semi-fascists. The side throwing political prisoners in solitary for upwards of a year with no charges, semi-fascists. The side that dehumanizes and scapegoats whole groups of people and encourages cutting them off from the economic system, semi-fascists. Here is a Michael Tracy tweet that says, fascist just means bad, so people screaming fascist about the so-called extreme MAGA movement don't even have to ponder the curious fact that the security state apparatus has been in open conflict with Trump for the past six years. The side with FBI pressuring big tech to suppress negative information about a political candidate? You guessed it, semi-fascist. Here is a tweet from Matt Taibbi saying, how is this not a huge story? And he's referring to Mark Zuckerberg telling Joe Rogan that Facebook algorithmically censored the Hunter Biden laptop story for seven days based on a general request from the FBI to restrict election misinformation. The power of the Democratic Party is shrinking and focusing on the most elite in our society. Their attention has narrowed significantly to the point where they are alienating more voters than they are attracting. From the Wall Street Journal's interview with Roy Tixera, quote, We're living in a country where most institutions are dominated by graduates of colleges and universities that have made it their mission to proselytize on behalf of crazy ideas. That includes the Democratic Party to a vastly greater extent than the GOP, especially the post-Trump GOP. Mr. Tixera acknowledges that this is a development the emerging Democratic majority failed to foresee. We didn't anticipate the extent to which cultural liberalism might sag into cultural radicalism and the extent to which that view 
particularly as driven by younger cohorts, would wind up imprinting itself on the entire infrastructure in and around the Democratic Party. The advocacy groups, the foundations, academia, of course, certainly the lower and middle levels of the Democratic Party infrastructure itself, end quote. Voters chose Biden partly because they believed he was a moderate. Instead, he's become a kind of George Spahn figure who passively allowed the Manson family to overtake Spahn Ranch. No, I'm not comparing the woke fanatics to the Manson family, but it is important to understand what we're dealing with here. Biden's ongoing dehumanization of Trump supporters is dangerous because of how people on the right or those who push back against the newfound religious zealotry on the new left, is reaching dangerous levels not seen since 1930s Germany. This example of the reaction to Ben Shapiro appearing at a podcast event is funny, but also downright chilling. They don't fear Shapiro because he's an Orthodox Jew. They fear him because of his political views. Can you remember any other time in American history where opinions held contrary to one's own made people feel unsafe. We're looking at the tweet from Podcast Movement. Hi folks, we owe you an apology before sessions kick off for the day. Yesterday afternoon, Ben Shapiro briefly visited the PM22 Expo area near the Daily Wire booth. Though he was not registered or expected, we take full responsibility for the harm done by his presence. Then they follow it up with, There's no way around it. We agreed to sell the Daily Wire a first-time booth based on the company's large presence in podcasting. The weight of that decision is now painfully clear. Shapiro is a co-founder. A drop-in, however unlikely, should have been considered a possibility. You can just feel that one, can't you? Like a punch in the gut. You don't just dismiss something like that. At least the Babylon Bee, still banned from Twitter, mocks the whole concept. There's a parody headline that says, Thousands dead after Ben Shapiro casually strolls through Whole Foods. (laughs) All right. You can see why so many still turn to Trump out of desperation, because Trump is not scared of them, even with everything they've thrown at him. Even facing an inevitable indictment, Trump just mocks them. Now we're looking at a truth from Donald Trump's Truth Social that says they missed a page and then it's a redacted piece of the affidavit that leaves only four words. Make America great again. (laughs) How does the American system survive someone they can't control? They've never had to deal with a Donald Trump, that's for sure. Trump is testing the Constitution every day. He's also proving why it is such an important document. The Constitution is the only thing preventing our current government from graduating from semi-fascists to full-blown fascists. Or how they used to refer to Stalin's regime, Red Fascism. They use their systems of power to subvert democracy, violate the Constitution, and weaponize the Department of Justice. As long as the media backs them up and the polls work in their favor, they won't stop. One of the great things about social media is that supposedly everyone had a voice online. But now, under Biden and in our post-2020 environment, our government is using big tech as a filter to violate the First Amendment, using misinformation or disinformation as a catch-all for speech they don't like. 
I posted a TikTok video of a high school coach ruminating on the Mar-a-Lago raid. He said he didn't believe the claims of a rigged election until he saw just how far the Democrats were willing to go to get Trump. His video was honest, heartfelt, and more than anything, his right as an American to speak his mind. Good morning. This is Coach Ude from Southern Cal. And I'm really at a loss. I had posted something about uh, really not believing that the 2020 elections were stolen. Uh, I just didn't believe it. I, I didn't think it could happen. But then after seeing everything that Joe Biden has done, and in particular the raid on Donald Trump's house, I can see now to where the Democratic Party has indeed got the power and the know-how to steal the election. And uh, I'm a little frightened. I had 300 and some odd comments of people questioning how I could not believe that the election was stolen. One, maybe I'm a little naive, but I just, I think that that would be too grand of a, a crime that anybody would even try it. But I also believe that everything that I see Biden going toward now, trying to start a new pandemic, uh, it, it just seems that the, the DNC is open to anything to keep in power. And they're taking power away from us as individuals. I'm an independent voter. I voted once for Obama, not the second time. I voted the second time for Bill Clinton, not the first time. And this past time, I voted for Trump. I'm in no way a Trumpster, but I thought that we needed a change. And not just a change in uh, politicians, but a change from politicians. And I thought that that's what Trump offered us. And I think he did one heck of a job the four years he was in. And whether he runs again or not, I, I just think that the Democrats are trying to rig the elections again. And I believe they can, I believe they will. And sadly, like I say, I have my opinions on things and I give my opinions here, but mostly ask questions to see what, you know, Americans are feeling on both sides. But this state of affairs actually frightens me that now they're raiding the former president's house, looking for anything contriving anything. This is Coach Ude from Southern Cal. Like, follow me, leave a comment, but be kind. YouTube removed the video citing misinformation. When I appealed, telling them that they had become authoritarians, I got this response. Hi, Sasha Stone. We reviewed your appeal for the following video, Voter on Mar-a-Lago Raid. We reviewed your content carefully and have confirmed that it violates our misinformation policy. We know this is probably disappointing news, but it's our job to make sure that YouTube is a safe place for all. Sites like Rumble, Substack, Getter, Truth Social, and other alternative platforms give the illusion that there is equal access to all. 
But if you've been online a while, you will know what it means to be dumped from the major organs of the new economy online. These big sites got there first. We trusted them by handing over our attention, our information, our relationships, our shopping behavior, and our history. Now they have betrayed that trust. Will the real fascists please stand up? So many people don't understand the word fascism. They throw it around because it plays well on Twitter and cable TV. It seems so unequivocal. Trump is bad. Fascists are bad. So Trump must be a fascist. Here is how Yuval Noah Harari defines fascism in Lessons for the 21st Century. The word fascism comes from the Latin fascis, meaning a bundle of rods. That sounds like a rather unglamorous symbol for one of the most ferocious and deadly ideologies in world history, but it has a deep and sinister meaning. A single rod is very weak and you can easily snap it in two. However, once you bundle many rods together into a fascis, it becomes almost impossible to break them. This implies that the individual is a thing of no consequence. But as long as the collective sticks together, it is very powerful. Fascists therefore believe in privileging the interests of the collective over those of any individual and demand that no single rod ever dare break the unity of the bundle. If Trump had been a fascist, there would not have been any protests in 2020. Protesters would have simply been shot on the spot or thrown in jail. There would have been no CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times, or any newspaper criticizing him, or even existing at all. Do you think the Speaker of the House would have ripped up a speech if standing behind a fascist? Do you think a fascist would have allowed non-stop dehumanization and bullying on Twitter every second? Not to mention on late-night comedy shows and award shows? Stephen Colbert? Arrested and convicted without a trial. Bill Maher? Solitary confinement. Hillary Clinton would have been locked up, AOC along with her. With fascism, you don't have to worry about bothersome things like due process, presumption of innocence, freedom of speech, democracy. You have absolute power and control over the state, which has absolute power over the citizenry. You can't tell me the zealots on the left wouldn't want that. Sure, you might say, Trump denied the results of the 2020 election, making him a fascist. But that makes him someone who has an unpopular opinion of something. Perhaps you find that bad or scary or an abuse of power or bad for the country, but calling it semi-fascist is a reach. MSNBC, CNN, and many of the legacy media outlets painted January 6th as a fascist coup and did a good job using video footage of a riot as a powerful piece of propaganda. But a violent protest against the government is not fascist. The crackdown of that riot is fascist, especially when they use powers put in place after 9-11 against their own citizens. None other than Vladimir Putin called this out, which is yet another example of how the Biden presidency and the insanity over Trump is weakening America's standing in the world. We look like a broken, fragile nation in our non-stop attacks against a former president and his supporters. My opponent's being jailed or imprisoned. People went into U.S. Congress with political demands. 400 people are now facing criminal charges. They are facing prison terms of up to 20, maybe 25 years. They are called homegrown terrorists. They are being accused of many other things. 
70 people were arrested right there on the spot. 30 of them are still arrested. On what grounds? Not quite clear. I mean, none of the official authorities from the states are informing the, us about it, so we don't know that. Uh, one of the participants, a woman, was shot dead on the spot. She, she was not threatening with, uh, you know, anything. Why am I bringing this up? Many people are facing the same things as we do, and I am stressing this. We are sympathizing with the United States, but we do not want the same thing repeating here. Because of the Democrats' dominance of Twitter, media, government, Hollywood, and all other major institutions, as they've become more uniform in their ideology and more militant in their demands that you go along with them, we're beginning to see the darker side of collectivism at work. After William H. Strauss and Neil Howe wrote The Fourth Turning in 2007, Roy H. Williams and Michael R. Drew took on the theory of the generations and tweaked it slightly in their book, Pendulum, How Past Generations Shape Our Present and Predict Our Future. They transformed Howe and Strauss's 80-year generational cycle into two 40-year cycles. One is the me cycle, individualism, and the other is a we cycle, collectivism. Looking over the patterns of history, they have noticed that the pendulum shifts in one direction until it wears out its welcome, then swings back in the other direction. Their overall hypothesis is that humans always take a good thing too far. When that happens, the pendulum spits and grinds and eventually swings back. We're now at the worst part of the we phase, the witch hunts, which they targeted occurring in 2023. Here it is, right on schedule. The only question is how bad it will get in the coming year. They write, quote, the second half of the upswing of we and the first half of the downswing from it, 2013 to 2023, brings an ideological righteousness that seems to spring from any group gathered around a cause. The inevitable result is judgmental legalism and witch hunts. The origin of the term witch hunt was the Salem Witch Trials, a series of hearings before county court officials to prosecute people accused of witchcraft in the counties of Essex, Suffolk, and Middlesex in colonial Massachusetts between February 1692 and May of 1693, exactly at the beginning of the second half of the upswing towards the wee zenith of 1703. Senator Joseph McCarthy was an American promoter of this witch hunt attitude at America's most recent wee zenith of 1943. See the House on American Activities Committee, 1937 to 1953. Adolf Hitler was the German promoter. See the Holocaust, 1933 to 1945. And Joseph Stalin was the Soviet promoter. See the Great Purge, 1936 to 1938. Our hope is that we might collectively choose to skip this development as we approach the wee zenith of 2023. If enough of us are aware of this trend towards judgmental self-righteousness, perhaps we can resist demonizing those who disagree with us and avoid the societal polarization that results from it. A truly great society is one in which being unpopular can be safe." Unquote. In a free market capitalist country like this one, consumers ideally have the power 
We tell corporations what to do, not the other way around. The more we migrate to online spaces, the less power we will have as consumers. Neil Howe marks 2008 as the year that sparked the fourth turning. The Wall Street meltdown and subsequent crisis supposedly kicks into gear events that will eventually take us to a major shift, a war, or some kind of revolution. We can feel the battle underfoot right now with the complete takeover of all institutions of power and government versus the populist uprising of the working class. The ultimate outcome remains uncertain. But 2008 is also the year Vivek Ramaswamy targets as the moment the corporations swapped woke ideology for any sort of concrete solutions to the problem of rising monopolies. He says that marriage was one of convenience. It means the activists felt heard and catered to while the corporations had the freedom to do whatever they wanted without the activists breathing down their necks. What happened in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis is the public's perception of Wall Street and big business changed dramatically in those two years. And in my opinion, for good reason. Because bankers made a lot of money when times were good. They got bailed out by the public fisc when times went bad. And so in the aftermath of those bailouts, Occupy Wall Street was on Wall Street's doorstep. What they wanted was change in their expectation from American capitalism. And what the old left wanted to do, agree or not, was to then take money from those wealthy corporate fat cats and to redistribute it to poor people to help poor people. Agree or not, that's what they had to say. That is part of what led to the birth of a new movement in this country, though, because there was a new wing of that left right around that same time that had a slightly different agenda. It was not to address poverty or economic injustice like most of the old left, like the Occupy Wall Street left. But it was to also say that actually the real problem was also racial injustice and misogyny and bigotry and the racially disparate impact of climate change. And that actually presented the opportunity of a generation for Wall Street and big business in this country to be able to say that, you know what? <laughs> I don't know if I love the Occupy Wall Street demands, but that new left's demand I can actually get on board with. I can applaud diversity and inclusion. I can put some token minorities on my board. I can muse about the racially disparate impact of climate change after flying on a private jet to Davos. This is actually pretty good work <laughs> if you can get it. But it came with a catch. It came with an implicit demand that the new left look the other way when it came to leaving that corporate power structure intact. And I think that was the arranged marriage that defined the trend that we've seen over the course of the next 14 years thereafter, neatly wrapped around with three-letter acronyms, SRI from Socially Responsible Investing, to ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance Factors, to CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, to my favorite one, CCP, <laughs> which you all know well, and I think has been a separate agenda that's actually been advanced, which we'll come back to. But, but this, this trade worked so well for Wall Street and the big banks to defang the Occupy Wall Street movement, to defang the old economic redistributionist left to focus on the new identity politic obsessed left that worked so well Talk about systemic racism all you want, as long as you don't talk about systemic financial risk. That worked so well that actually Silicon Valley 
then observed that and got in on the act. Because what Silicon Valley recognized in this country was that prior to 2010, the biggest threat to monopoly power in Silicon Valley, the old version of the breakup big tech, actually came from the left. So what they recognized was that we can enter the same implicit transaction to say that, you know what? We will lend our corporate power in service of advancing the ends of that left, but we will not do it for free. We effectively expect that the new left look the other way when it comes to leaving our monopoly power intact. We will take down hate speech and misinformation and content as you wish to define it that others should not see on the internet. Whatever needs to be done by way of content moderation, we will do. But again, we have an implicit quid pro quo in return, and that is the autonomy from the demands of that old left to continue aggregating that level of monopoly power. See, that is the defining trade that I think drove the merger of corporate power and state power over the course of the last decade and a half in this country. And it worked so well, starting on Wall Street, and then it worked so well for Silicon Valley, that that's when the rest of corporate America then decided to get on the train. Coca-Cola issuing new statements about voting laws in Georgia, many of you are familiar with, that make it sound more like a super PAC than a soft drink manufacturer. Teaching its employees how to be less white, all the while, saying nothing and avoiding the conversation about their own products impact on the nationwide epidemic of diabetes and obesity, including in the black community that they profess to care so much about. Nike, criticizing slavery 250 years ago in the United States to no end, while actually doing nothing to reduce their own reliance on slave labor today to produce $250 sneakers that they sell to those black kids in the inner city who can't afford to buy books for school. This was a game that worked out pretty well for both sides. It was an arranged marriage, okay? I use this term intentionally. My parents had an arranged marriage. It actually worked out really well. I'm, I'm, I've grown more partial to the model as in my, in my adult life. If, if you learn, think about it a little bit. But this was not the arranged marriage of love, okay? This was an arranged marriage of convenience. It was an arranged marriage in which each side actually didn't love the other side. They secretly had disdain for the other side but they got into the relationship anyway. It was more like mutual prostitution because each side got something out of the trade. And the net result was the birth of this new woke industrial complex, a new force, a new Leviathan in modern American life that was far more powerful than what Thomas Hobbes envisioned 400 years ago, far more powerful than what our founding fathers envisioned 250 years ago when they put into motion a three-part system of government with checks and balances, not envisioning a fourth branch of government in the private sector itself that would suck the lifeblood out of the constitutional government that we put into motion. And it is a new monster that actually duped both sides into submission. The old left that used to be skeptical about the aggregation and misuse of corporate power was defanged and deflected by the fact that actually they were distracted by the fact that these new guys are going to advance the causes, the progressive causes that we love so much that they forgot about their principled opposition to settling political questions through corporate power. And for the conservative wing's part, conservatives were duped into submission by memorizing and reciting slogans that we all memorized back in the 1980s saying that the free market can do no wrong without recognizing 
that that free market does not exist today. And that's the story of how both sides actually contributed to the creation of possibly the most powerful force in modern American life, this merger of state power and corporate power. Woke capitalism, as Ramaswamy calls it, is still not semi-fascism. Once Biden took power in 2020, however, he then took the Iron Throne at the top of all of it. It's more than just the activists and the corporations. Now it's the administration executing top-down activism for much of the same reasons the corporations did it, so that we would all look the other way as they abuse their power against ordinary citizens. In other words, how convenient to have a scapegoat like MAGA, where suddenly their constitutional rights no longer matter because they've been so dehumanized by the media, the blue checks, and now Joe Biden. But if their constitutional rights no longer matter, neither do ours. Now is the time to push for a new amendment to the Constitution, an internet bill of rights of sorts to protect ordinary Americans against the semi-fascist forces that seem to be all around us in just a few short years. At the very least, all Americans should have access to the new town square and hub of most of our growing economic systems online. We still live in a democracy, but it is something we will have to fight for. The Democrats won't. It will have to be up to the Republicans should they take back Congress to stand up to the powerful monopolies that now threaten the very foundations of our free country. The six-year-long hunt to get Trump, the FBI's involvement in suppressing potentially damaging information, the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, and the inevitable indictment of Trump we all know is coming, are all much bigger threats to our democracy than Trump will ever be. Thank you for listening to my Substack, sashastone.substack.com. And remember, to thine own self be true.